And all of that goes to the, the ultimate experience that that customer is having. We want them to have a great staff experience, a great service experience. We want them to walk into a really beautiful, great space and have great sound. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in this week. Really excited to bring you today's conversation with Nick Chakota, owner of the Wilma, the Top Hat, the Kettle House Amphitheater, and soon the Elm in Bozeman as well. Nick's event promotions company, Logjam Presents, has transformed live entertainment here in Montana, and he brings a professionalism and focus to a somewhat unruly space. In this conversation, you'll learn more about the industry and how it works, and you'll also see pretty quickly how Nick's laser focus on the customer experience has guided his entire operation. Finally, as an important player in Missoula's development, Nick also has some interesting things to say about our community and how we should think about growth. It was great to learn more about Nick and his approach, and I'm excited to bring you our conversation right now. Okay, so we're here today with Nick Chakota. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. I'm kind of shocked that I actually got some of your time. You seem like you are such a busy guy with all the many things you have going on, not only in this town, but all around the state, apparently. Yeah, yeah. We've, uh, we definitely started our business here in Missoula with the Top Hat, but have expanded into this market. And then uh, a couple years ago, we really targeted Bozeman as, mm-hmm. as a market we want to be in. Uh, we like both these markets quite a bit and, and feel that Bozeman's got a ton of prop- uh, opportunity. And you're relatively new to the entertainment business, right? I mean, you, you've been in real estate, which you know, you're in real estate here, but, you know, relatively short career, uh, especially considering the ima- uh, incredible amount of success you've had in a short time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of my staff says I'm a, I'm a developer or I'm a promoter trapped in a developer body. Okay. And I, I definitely like to develop projects, which, which dovetails really nicely into the music industry because it's one of the last industries I feel like where bricks and mortar still is, is a critical component of what mm-hmm. you do. Um, with respect to the entertainment side, yeah, we, we, we jumped right in and, and, um, you know, it's really about just being organized and staying on top of it and, 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 and getting your operations in, in check and, and really spending a lot of time working with agents and trying to attract the right bands. But it's not rocket science to promote. It's, it's really just getting the organization in place and, and doing a good job. I, I find the industry as a whole is still somewhat immature and fragmented and, and fairly disorganized. And, yeah. and uh, the opportunities exist. You're seeing Live Nation on a, on a, inter, on a national, international scale really jump on that. But even on, on our scale in Montana, there, there's just a ton of opportunity. I, I don't feel like it was a very mature industry that, that really had a solidified player in Montana. Yeah, when you say mature, I mean, that could be a bit of a, euphem- a euphemism for unsophisticated like or uh, unruly of a sort. It seems as though that's one of the things we try to look at in the entertainment management program here is, uh, you know, you're kind of bringing some, you know, tried and true business principles to a rather unruly, maybe immature industry, as you said. Yeah, very fragmented. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look at Mon- Montana, prior to where we really got going, it was very small promoters, um, many of them younger, mm-hmm. um, not well capitalized. And so I think it didn't serve Montana well or didn't serve Missoula well because they couldn't really afford to go after the types of acts that 
I think there's demand for. So they weren't capitalized in a way that let them put the big guarantees out there, the big offers out there, and took the risk to bring these artists in. Even though I think a lot of them knew there was an opportunity, they just didn't have the means to pursue it. And so how did you go about putting yourself in a position to be able to have that foundation uh, from which you could reach out to those bigger acts and grow? Well, you know, we started with the top hat, and, right? And what was that two thousand twelve? Two thousand twelve, yeah. Okay. yeah. And it was tough going. I mean, it's a one. It's really hard to make a living at at the club level as a promoter. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a you know, there's not a lot of upside. Given there's not a lot of downside either, so there's not a ton of risk. But it's hard to to generate enough capital to make that smaller club model work. Okay. Um, so we we kept going and did what we could at the top hat level, and then the opportunity came along for the Wilma and. And we realized that that would really be the the way that we could start to make Logjam as a as an entertainment promoting entity work. Um, so we got a great deal on the Wilma. Yeah, the Wilma seemed like such a like a treasure in waiting. You know, I think uh, yeah, I don't know Rick's whole story, but it seemed like he was sort of stewarding the property in a way, not investing in it the way you were. Yeah, you know, I think Rick um, and Rick's a friend of mine, but I think Rick bought that facility really for the condo conversion opportunity okay. on the upper levels. Mm-hmm. And I think he did a great job with that, and they were successful with it, and then was left with the the theater component. And, and really, that wasn't his career or what he had his interest in. He's a real estate developer right. and, and didn't quite know the best way to pursue or, or to manage that. And so he hired a, a third-party promoter to come in and, and run it. Um, and there's all kinds of challenges when you do that. Yeah. Um, the, the the person running the venue isn't the person that is vested in the community, sure. isn't vested in, in the property, and isn't going to invest capital into the into it. Um, so it, it hadn't really been touched in about 50 years. But I agree with you. It was a it, it's a gem, and it was just waiting for somebody to to take it on. Um, and fortunately, I got the right price that I could make the numbers work for mm-hmm. it, and um, have have enough left over to. Do the investments to make it uh, as beautiful as it is today? Yeah, of, for yeah. sure. And yeah. and, and uh, you know, you had to. That was a, a great project, and it was as a, as a with my background in real estate development. Development, it was interesting because trying to find that balance between a historic theater and a functioning club, if you mm-hmm. will, because that's what it is. It, we've turned it into a giant club in many ways. Yeah. You know, trying to find that balance. How do you make this a modern club facility that has the right circulation, the bar service, all of those kinds of things, and still preserve that beautiful historic nature that it has? So, it was quite a, a design challenge. It was it was fun, and it it it. Um, I think we we pulled it off personally, but you know, I guess the con- customer can judge that. Well, the attendance at the acts and yeah. and, and so forth seems to speak for itself. Along those lines, speaking of attendance, I mean. I, it seems like you've kind of reconceptualized the customer. I mean, you mentioned this market here, the local market being fragmented and not very mature. Uh, it is a college town, yet, you know, th- it seems like the, the the acts that you're bringing in, you know, certainly appeal to a broad range of people, but maybe to more of the people that are living here throughout the year. For sure. And I think we do, we did that with the Top Hat yeah. uh, restaurant and bar. I think we've done that with our acts. I, uh, we like the college, uh, the college population as a customer, and I think we do do shows for that group. Um, but the reality is, 
that population is gone in the summer. They're gone over winter break. They're gone over Thanksgiving. They're gone over spring break. Mm -hmm. And they have finals, and they run out of money. Yeah. Um, so as a customer base, they're not a very reliable customer. And they also are transient in that a lot of them come for four or six years, and then they're gone. Sure. So to build that loyalty with that group is also challenging. So we quickly came to that conclusion, both in the restaurant and bars, and started targeting an older demographic. Uh, and with the music as well. I mean, we try to really diversify our genres to be able to not burn any one specific audience out. But we also go after those genres that, that are more financially viable and can can afford ticket prices, can afford the concessions, and, and are going to consistently year after year, all year, come to the shows. Right. And now you've, you know, you've got it up and running at the Wilma. You've got, this is what, year three at the Kettle House Amphitheater now. And, and are you currently booking acts in, in Bozeman at the Rialto, or are you like what's the status in, of the Bozeman operation at this point? Yeah, so we took over the Rialto as of September first. So we're booking okay. acts, but all the acts we're booking are after September first. Sure. Um, we're helping them fill out their calendar a little. It had gotten light, so we are putting a few things in, like we just confirmed to sleep at the wheel um, and some some other acts that come up this summer. Um, but when when we take over September first, and that's when really we'll be all in. And what's the target date on the, the new facility? Is it, is it pronounced the Elm? The Elm, Elm, yeah. Elm? Okay. The Elm. Uh, the, that is uh, January 2020, and we're right on schedule. Wow. We, we started steel erection this week, and um, we're pretty excited about that because it, it gave me the opportunity to take everything I learned remodeling the Top Hat and the Wilma, uh-huh. everything I learned developing a new amphitheater and visiting all these rooms and kind of apply it all into one venue. So I, I, I think it's going to be a pretty cool space. What are some of those lessons like you, that you drew from all your various properties? You know, for me, it all comes down, you know, there's four or five things that when I do a venue that are super important. One, view lines. you got to have great view lines for the customers. So mm-hmm. tiering and how you manage those view lines is essential. Um, sound. Yeah. Um, we're spending quite a bit of time and money on acoustically treating that space, so it has a great foundation for us to do sound. But that doesn't mean just putting a ton of absorption up. It means finding that balance between a, a dead or dead room and a live room. Yeah. Um, circulation. You know, you 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 want to find the right amount. I mean, it's co- you, you want revenue per square foot, but you also want to find that right amount of circulation. So. Your, your customers aren't on top of each other. You have the circulation outside the performance space. Your bars function well, and there aren't wait lines sure. at the bars, all of those kinds of things. You know, those are the three big ones. And then you get to the artists. you got to have great facilities for the artists, green rooms, production space. Um, we want to design that Bozeman room in a way that I can get what's called an underplay, meaning uh, a larger artist might play in a market like Bozeman because I think you have the audience there that might spend the money on a ticket sure. like the Belly Up mm-hmm. in Aspen. And uh, as a result, you got to put the stage and the, and the production in place that those large artists will come in and still play that stage and you have the facilities to accommodate them. Yeah, you have the acoustics, you have all the pieces where they feel like they can sort of, they're set up for success and, mm-hmm. and it's an investment for them. Some will just say, if it doesn't have a certain size stage or the green room facilities or a certain kind of production capability, they just won't play the room. Yeah, how does that work? I mean, you must have invested a ton of your time and effort into trying to attract the right bands here. And it's got to be a bit of a sales pitch in some cases. How, do, how What are the mechanics of those negotiations? You know, our strategy was with the Wilma, for instance, was let's let's – create a a fantastic space that has great sound and production. So we went out and spent a million dollars on the sound system. Mm -hmm. We brought in one of the best sound systems, I think, 
of any venue of our size in the in the Western U.S. Um, so you have that. So you, you can say, look, we've got this production capability. They don't have to worry about the quality of how they're going to sound and come across. And, you know, the woman was somewhat fixed, so you could only do so much with the stage, sure. but you could do a lot with the production. Um, and then, you know, up front, we probably spent a little bit more on, on artists than we needed to mm-hmm. or would, would the market would typically spend, but you had to attract them in here and and get that awareness going with the agent community and the artist community that this is a, a well-run professional venue. It's got great, great production, and it, it's a cool space. And so the first few years, we really just went after artists and and like I said, probably threw a little bit more money around than we, we needed to, but uh, I think it paid off. And then you start to build right that that it's a small industry. It's yeah, a it very becomes, small world. Absolutely. These guys talk, you know, one big act coming here becomes permission. Well, if those guys played it, I guess we should or could or yeah. we'll get treated right. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we uh, you know, I, I I know what our competitors in other markets do. I'm, I'm not talking more of the independents. I'm talking more of the, the national players. Uh-huh. And we treat the artists in a whole different way than they do. Really? And we also treat our customers in a whole different way. Okay. I mean, um, one of our strategies on the customer side is we're very vertically integrated in that if you go to a, a Live Nation venue, and I'm not criticizing Live Nation, but if you go to one of their venues, they outsource, outsource their security. Right. They outsource their bar staff and their concessions. They they outsource all these components um, where we've taken a very different approach. Everybody's on our payroll. The bars are our bars. The, the security and event staff is our event staff. Mm-hmm. And all of that goes to the the ultimate experience that that customer is having. We want them to have a great staff experience, a great service experience. We want them to walk into a really beautiful, great space and have great sound. And I think you got to create this great customer experience. And as a result, you have really loyal customers, which we do. Um, Where if you go to a, a, a large promoter, even in our neighboring towns, uh, that's not the experience you're right. getting. Uh, it's a totally different experience. Their facilities are not well kept generally, and this is true all over the country, not just in in our region. They they don't they don't have that customer experience front and center. It's more just a routing thing that they're doing. Okay. Um, so you know we live the the thing the beautiful thing about Missoula is it's a small community and we have really loyal support, but. The flip side of that is I see every customer every day walking down the sidewalk, sure. and, you know, and they know who I am. And, yep. and therefore, we, we, may, we have to make sure that we keep giving them a great experience. And what was, what was the process where you sort of arrived at that, at that wisdom of being totally vertically integrated, owning all the pieces of the, the customer experience? I mean, particularly considering you know, your relatively recent entry point into the industry. Did you come in with that a priori, like this is the way I want to do it, or, or did experiences sort of bear that out for you? You know, it's, it, I really didn't know it until I, I bought the Wilma and had about five months of operations with the knitting factory. And, and Oh, yeah. And there was some conflict early on with the knitting yeah, factory. Yeah, that hadn't happened yet. Okay. Um, okay. They, that, they, they, I guess, had that in their plans, but didn't, didn't express that. But, uh, just watching how they do it, and again, not being necessarily critical of them, but not having control of the the concessions and bar areas, for instance, meant you didn't control your 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 quality of service, your wait times, yeah. and you'd go in there and it'd be seven, ten, fifteen minutes to get a beer. Um, where if it's more than two minutes in one of our venues, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, same with the the staffing. Um, you know, a lot of promoters use CMS, which is a fine option. 
whatever. Yeah, it's. so like the outsourced talent and sort of the outsourced these folks security service. They do, yeah. Okay. And and for us, the 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 the, the event staff is a hospitality uh, tool, really, mm-hmm. uh, and they should have a hospitality mentality, and they 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 shouldn't have a security mentality. Don't 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 be fooled. We have security, but they're invisible. They're on the perimeter. Our, our are people that you interact with at the gates and that you interact with in the venue, they're there to, to service the customer, not mm-hmm. necessarily be security to that customer. Um, and and that's just not a mindset you see a lot in, in, in our industry. Um, the customer service, I, as you go around venues in the country, is pretty poor yeah. uh, in the music industry. And I, I again, I think that's a, a function of... Um, just the type of uh, the, the the type of promoters that are out there, and the type of businesses that have kind of grown out of this industry, they just don't have that mindset. Yeah, maybe you know, it, a lot of reasons. It's probably it's not integrated. Lots of use of contractors, people that aren't invested across the suite of offerings, and then you know that immaturity as well. And even as you as you see a more mature industry happening with Live Nation, who is just gobbling up everybody in yeah. in the industry, um, they're they're also interesting because they they don't really live in their markets they're just routing artists through multiple markets sure so i don't think they know the markets that they're they're promoting into the degree that i think they should mm-hmm. um and i i just as they grow it's almost like a franchise type of mentality right and and you go to uh most franchises around the united states and Again, you don't have that owner vested kind of mentality that goes on in a, in in those type of environments. With operations like Live Nation, do bands or acts sign up and then Live Nation just books them into various locations? Like, do the artists have much control over where they end up going, or is it like the tour is produced as one monolithic thing? You know, I think it depends. You you, you have agents, so you, the industry set up uh, where you have agents represent artists, and so promoters like myself. In Live Nation, we deal with the agent. Mm-hmm. And then behind that, you have management that manages the actual day-to-day of that tour. So once they're booked, my staff, my marketing team, those folks will deal with management. Okay. So when an agent sells that artist, if Live Nation comes in with a 15-show offer, well, that's pretty attractive to an agent because they only are dealing with one entity. They got 15 shows. They have all the efficiencies of that contracting and all of that. So I think that's the appeal of a Live Nation um, the appeal of an independent promoter like us is we're more vested. We're here. We know this market. Um, we really care about the agent. I mean, the the artists. Mm-hmm. Um, we care about our rooms. We own our rooms. There's there's they're, they're kind of these two competing things. And, yeah. and agents like independent promoters, though it's more work for them to work with us, um, just because of the scale they get with a live nation. Um, so it, it's an interesting thing going on in the industry. I mean, the, the independents like us are a dying breed. There's very, very few markets that have strong independent promoters left in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Montana markets because it lends itself to that. Yeah, uh, I would think so. Yeah, there's one. There's there's only you know Missoula only has one fifteen hundred cap room. Yep, and it's our room, and as a result, we we have the ability to kind of compete successfully in that market. You go into Seattle and there's five rooms and an independent promoter just can't maintain a competitive 
advantage against a live nation. Yeah, and you're seeing that in Seattle, like the show box closing down and other venues under under pressure, and none of them seem to be are very well capped, as you as you mentioned before. Yeah, it's Live Nation, AEG are, are the big players, and um, if you pay attention to Live Nation, they're literally making an acquisition of a promoter a week. Wow. Um, you know, they, they've dominated their big markets, and now they, they cause they're a public company, they have to grow, they have to mm-hmm. keep their, their shareholders happy. So they, they start to go into tertiary markets like Missoula or Boise or Spokane, or they're going international. So if you look okay. at their acquisition strategy, you're seeing just that. They're buying promoters in these smaller markets, and they're buying promoters in international markets, particularly Latin America and Europe. Although growth, you know, is certainly important to you. I mean, the evidence shows that you're you're growing on a variety of dimensions in a variety of markets. How do you kind of how does scale work with your operation? I mean, how do you sort of balance you know, when it's time and when there's a need to to move forward and, and move into a new market or acquire a new venue? You know, scale is important in this business yeah. for sure, and and I, I think that is the success of a live nation, the scale that they get. Sure, um, you know, scale is important around. You have certain core infrastructure things that you need to put on events. You have your marketing department and you have your box office and your accounting functions and those types of activities. As you add venues, you don't need to add the proportionate number of people. And those resources, particularly around the marketing functions, um, tend to scale really well. Okay. So we're, we have our headquarters here in Missoula. Uh, most of my staff actually came out of this program. Yeah, yeah. And that team is really scaling nicely as we add venues. And, and while we're adding people, we're not having to add proportionately the number of people that we that, that you need for each new venue. Got it. And when it's just the top hat, it's very difficult because you still need a base number of people to make that work. Um, but you don't have the revenue coming in to justify that salary. So as you start to add venues, you start to have the scale that, that lets you – uh, be profitable in this industry. It's it's a tough industry to be profitable in. I mean, it's getting squeezed from a lot of different areas. A new angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hey, this is Ryan Tutel of ESPN Radio in Missoula, and you're listening to A New Angle. When you think about that growth, and your conceptualization of growth, I mean, you're also situated within a community and a downtown corridor here in Missoula in particular that's growing on a variety of dimensions. And there's a lot of, I don't know if consternation is the right word, but a lot of thoughtful debate about what that growth could, should look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get people that say like, oh, I don't want us to, you hear a lot like people are pretty clear on what they don't want it to be. Yeah, very few people are clear on what they want it to be. How do you sort of view growth in the downtown corridor as, as a key sort of piece of that puzzle? Yeah, I think it's super tricky. I mean, Missoula's fortunate over a town like Bozeman, for instance, that it's got this nice big downtown footprint that it can grow into over time. Yeah. Um, so it, it has a great uh, kind of baseline to grow into. Um, but... You know, I, I I share those feelings, even though I've only lived here for ten years. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand the idea of and 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 kind of the the hesitancy around the growth. Um, you know, I think growth overall is good for Missoula. I'd like to see more growth around jobs that that um, pay people in that fifty to one hundred thousand dollar range. Uh-huh. Um, I think the city's got to be very smart about how they encourage growth. Um, I th- I think there's been a few mistakes made. Um, 
you know, I, I think we should be very thoughtful about how we're the kind of design standards and requirements we're placing on certain developers that come in and okay. and, and want to grow in this market. Um, and they're doing the master plan effort, and hopefully that's successful. Yeah, and what do you think of the master plan? Putting you on the spot a little bit. It's all right. Um, I like some things. I don't like others. Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I think it's always a little tricky when you bring in national consultants that, that yeah. try to compare us to places like Boulder and Asheville and Austin because um, we're not. Right. And um, some recommendations I've seen that I, I don't agree with, um, I do you know, I I don't agree that change should be coming into downtown Missoula. I I don't agree in um, the number of of retail and restaurants they think the downtown area can support. Um, I don't quite understand the hotel thing going on right now, but maybe that's just I don't understand that industry. But there's a lot of hotels. the two more hotels in addition to the Merck. Is that yeah. what you mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think we have to be careful about parking. You know, for us downtown businesses, we want to still be a destination, and to be a destination, people coming into town have to make sure they can find parking. Yeah, it can't be a pain in the ass to yeah. to go out for a night in the town. If it starts with a, pro, a a challenge finding parking, it just turns a lot of people off. Particularly, you know, parents paying babysitters and that kind of customer base that you rely on a lot to fill your shows. For sure. And if people are coming up from the Bitterroot or out, out of out of the core downtown too, that even that parking even becomes a more intimidating yeah. piece to it. And a lot of those folks don't like garages. And um, so, you know, I, th- I, th- I think that's a, a challenge. Um, overall, though, I think Mayor Ingen's, he's a, he's a very business-friendly mayor. And mm-hmm. um, from our perspective, I think he, he gets it and he's doing a good job. I it's a tricky thing to manage growth at the rate that the uh, that these towns in Montana are growing right now. Yeah, and the populations are shifting too, uh, and the types of employers we have here. I mean, I think about that I constantly. Um, you know, we're in this university, and we happen to have this shortage of students, right? Which is so odd because, well, it's not odd for a lot of reasons, but it's odd in the sense that we also have this local economy that's really expanding a lot of those jobs in that fifty to hundred thousand dollar range. New companies moving in here, new types of businesses, creative entrepreneurial enterprises, and we need to be able to be in a position to fill those jobs. And those people need to have, you know, places to live and a reason to stick around and good schools for their kids eventually and places to recreate. There's a, it's it's a complicated sort of swirl of things happening here. It is. You want downtown housing because you yeah. you want an active and vibrant core. You want to make sure there's good housing downtown. You want affordable housing. And I don't mean low-income housing. I mean affordable housing. Right. And you go into communities like Bozeman, and they've lost that. They don't. Yeah, have that market has already set sail. It has. Yeah. Um, I think Missoula still has it, but um, it's something that we have to be really mindful of as someone that employs 200 people in the service industry. Um, you want to make sure that those folks aren't feeling the bend effect or the boulder effect where they have to live 35, 40 miles out of town to be able to afford to live and then have to commute in. I mean, you want those people part of our community in, in downtown and in, in not on the edges, but in the community. It's such a tricky thing, and I don't know how to manage it. I don't necessarily know how the economics of all of it work. I mean, everybody wants the value of their home to go up, except on tax day, Yeah, right? (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Um, But collectively, if all of our housing values are going up at 11% a year, which I think they did last year, like 
that's tough. It's tough because wages aren't going up 11% a year. Certainly not. Certainly not. They are in the last couple of years, but historically they haven't. Historically, that would put you out of business probably. It would. But boy, we we are having to, on the service industry, we're having to move our wages up pretty aggressively Mm -hmm. to keep our core top people um, there, there is a definite labor shortage in Missoula right now, without a que- without question. So, okay, another question putting you on the spot: What can we do better to to help with that labor shortage here at the University of Montana? What do you need more of in terms of the supply of labor coming out of here? Well, we need more students. I mean, yeah, we need losing that. five thousand students was brutal. I mean, I think not only do I feel that as a business, um, uh, but you know, as an employer, yeah, um, we've had great success hiring out of the university. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I I think. Schools like University of Montana, Montana State are are producing great students, and they're the kind of students that I want to hire. I, I'm not looking to hire a Wharton grad. Um, I'd rather hire the type of student that comes to these schools that knows how to work, um, doesn't have an ego, um, and and will fit into our culture and yeah. fit into what we do. Um, you know, I think the business school specifically could make sure that that all the students coming out of the business school have the basics of business, which I found they haven't all had. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure they can read financial statements, basic accounting skills. I'm not looking for a CPA, but they got to know the difference between a, a P&L and a, a balance sheet. Yep. Um, you know, I think getting more real-world experience into the business program is key. I, I, don't want them, I don't want them to be too academic. And I think that uh, getting business leaders to be more engaged and 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 involved in the teaching of classes and more internships and actual practical experiences is, is is essential. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's good to get the the theory, but I also think they they got to understand how this all actually works in the real world. And you employ a ton of our active students in various shows and in various capacities. I mean, what sorts of experiences are they getting? in terms of those entry-level jobs where there are still students here? You know, I think, um, yeah, I mean, on the, on the, the op, like the true business operation side, our, our entertainment um, business, um, you know, they, we hired them right out of school, so a lot of them didn't have a ton of experience. A, a few of them had done some, a lot of festival work and mm-hmm. just took their own initiative and, and worked for free and got experience, which was great. Um, we tend to promote within, so we're, we're fortunate we can hire an event staff out of this entertainment ma- management program. They can work as an event staff. We can move them into the box office, and as we really like them, we can kind of bring them up. And so most of the people that I've hired, hired permanently on the business side have worked with us in some other capacity before we hired them, Sure, um, which we really like. So, you know, what the business, what the entertainment management program at the university does for me is it it siphons off the people that are known to be interested in entertainment management. Yeah. Um, are they getting all the skills that I'd like them to have? They're, they're not. But at least I know these are people that really want to be in entertainment. They're getting a base education. Um, but I really think more internships, more um, more applicable learning, um, you know, really getting into how the, the business works rather than kind of more on the theory side yeah, would be yeah. great. That makes sense. Um, you know, speaking of sort of business fundamentals, one thing that I just am often befuddled at is pricing in terms of entertainment. How does concert pricing work? Like, how do you price an act? Yeah, you know, the, do you mean the actual payment to the act or the ticket price? Well, the whole thing, like, uh, you know, I'm the user. I see that Mumford & Sons is going to be selling for X 
how do you, how do you get to X? And then within X, I mean, you don't need to divulge your margins, but maybe talk about like who gets what pieces of that. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, a really tricky thing, yeah. particularly in a market like Missoula, in in that we don't have the ability to to go to the ticket levels that you see in a Seattle or Portland. So our ticket levels are usually a good bit less. Yeah. Um, but the way I price it is is a couple fold. You, you have two components. You're pricing the ticket price of the customer and what I'm paying the artist. Okay. Um, so the guarantee I get to the artist, I, I get to in a few ways. One, there's a lot of history out there. When that, you say a guarantee, like a flat sum that they're going to get regardless? or Yeah, they, a... they get they usually kind of stepping back. The, the artist really is compensated in two ways. One, they get a flat guarantee, a flat sum. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say, you know, an amp artist gets $100,000. Okay. So that's their flat sum. Um, and then they usually, after all the expenses are covered um, and the show the show costs have been paid for, and there's whatever's left over, it's called the back end, usually there's some split up of, of those funds between the promoter and the artist. Okay. Um, so to get to that flat sum guarantee, you really – there's a lot of history out there. I've also developed a network of other promoters that I work with, other independent promoters down in Colorado, Wyoming, um, over in Seattle, that, that we all get together pretty regularly, talk about what avails. We're seeing availability, meaning artists coming through, uh-huh. um, what we're paying for them. So we have that network that really helps. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of it's a guess. I mean, sometimes the agent will give you good information and tell you what that artist is is seeing in the market sometimes they're exaggerating the fee sometimes sure. they're not yeah um you know so you get to know which agents are more of a partnership and which agents are really pushing hard to get the most they can for their artist and then you take all that information and and you, you kind of work backwards and say all right well here's the ticket price that works based on my costs okay and then you have to say well what's the market bearer and you have to compare that and then you have to find that balance and 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 make that ticket price relative to that um that artist guarantee or what the artist should be compensated how that all works um generally speaking you know on a on a good show there's a lot of risk for a promoter i mean i can i can lose on an amphitheater show or on a on a ballpark show you know i could lose 50 to 100,000 right. i can make 50 to 100,000 mm-hmm. um so it's 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 really a gamble in a lot of ways. Um, as we really learn this market, we know what we think is going to be successful, but we're not always right. Um, and and uh, we've had some big home runs, and we've definitely had some big losses. And how often are those, you know, wins and losses attributable to the to the pricing function? Like, we, we, you know, we priced that one too high, or we priced it too low, and we left some on the table. I mean, it's got to be really hard to even judge that because there's so many other factors too. There are, yeah. I mean. Um, what the, what the market wants to listen to, um, number of a- artists that you're bringing in. I mean, this summer in Missoula, we're, we're always trying to figure out where's the saturation point in Missoula. Yeah, where is it? <laughs> um, and I think we found it this summer. I mean, okay. not in a bad way, but I mean, I think we found kind of, all right, the market can bear this much music. Um, and, and I think this summer we're bringing that much music mm-hmm. in. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it, it's a real challenge. And how to, yeah, I mean, I guess this is, when you talk about you got this flat guarantee to the to the artist, and then you got, you know, the back end, which is after all your cost, and then probably those costs are also a little bit negotiated with the agent, because they have to have transparency, or, you know, you, your transparency has to go back and forth. Yeah, agents, I think, start to, you know, really, when, when you cut through it all, I work with about 20 agents. Sure. 
And I think they all start to come to their own judgment on what kind of promoter you are. And are you the kind of promoter where everything's on the table and it's very transparent? Or are you the kind of promoter that's bearing costs and things all over the place? And we believe, and we we really stick to this, that transparency is the best way. So our costs are are always actual what we present to the the agents. And with that, then I think we get a little bit more trust with that agent, mm-hmm. a little bit more leeway. I, the agents want us to make money too. Yeah. Um, so th- they're not looking. Some agents will squeeze you down, but other agents, most agents get it. And they want strong independence out there. Um, they want healthy buyers in these markets, and they want to do repeat business with us. So, um, yeah, that that's something we've we've learned over time is is – how to price this? Once you, once you also the Wilma's expenses are pretty much always pretty similar. Right. right. Um, the amphitheater we've really got dialed in. That first season was challenging. Mm-hmm. We're figuring out Ogren right now at a whole different level. At four, yeah. you know, at, at thirteen thousand people going yeah, it's in. Yes, thirteen thousand go in there. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so that's a big production. It's a, we're bringing in staging. We're bringing in. Yeah. You know, it's a ten semi show. Um, you're feeding hundreds of people. You have. You know, on day of show, we're going to have over 200 people on site working on that day. Wow. Um, you know, so you have all these different components that you have to figure out. Um, we're fortunate. We have the bar um, mm-hmm. always. And we're doing the bar at Ogram. We do it at all our venues. And um, that's a safety net. But in my business, I really keep those as totally two separate businesses. And I need to make money as a promoter. And it needs to be a standalone viable business. And I need to make money as a as a concession operator. Right, and right. It needs to be a standalone business. And we really look at it that way. But in, in reality... I do have that as a safety net if a show does. Mm-hmm. does it's uh, a nice hedge for yeah. sure. When you think of risk, I mean, you mentioned Ogren, 13,000. There's also this venue right down the road here, Grizzly Stadium, and not to mention the Adam Center. Bigger venues, right? I mean, we think of the iconic concerts that we've been able to sell that place out at. It just seems like such an underutilized resource. How do you view concerts of that scale in Missoula, in Montana in general? Yeah, I agree. It's an underutilized source, and I think the university knows that. And they're they're trying to find ways to to address that. But I think it's a good venue. I mean, I, the, the the challenge that you have with that is it's not made to uh, enter and and uh, process twenty five thousand people. <laughs> yeah, anybody that went to the Pearl Jam concert sort of lived through that. For yeah, sure. I think that's its biggest challenge. Just the gating and and how how you get in and out of that venue, I find to be the biggest challenge. I think once it was set up, I thought Pearl Jam was a great show. It was, yeah. Um, and I thought the venue felt good in there. I thought the sound was great. Um, I, I thought overall experience there was good except for getting in and out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, there's not a whole lot you can do with it. With Ogren, we've spent a tremendous amount of time looking at the the how we're going to process people in and out of there. And we're going to open up some more gates and we're going to do some things that let us get that volume of people in and out of there. But you know, I think that's the biggest challenge of, of, of Grizz Stadium. That said, I think it could be doing two or three big shows a summer yeah. um, very successfully, and, and we would like to be part of that for sure. I mean, how do you think of risk at that level? I mean, higher risk, higher reward, I guess. Without a doubt. I yeah. mean, you're, you're looking at that level. You're looking at million-dollar guarantees, and, and um, you, you, you know, I think you're looking for slam dunks for us. And right. There's a lot of artists that could come in there that I have no question could sell out the venue. You would think. Yeah, we've got a pretty good track record of that. 
Well, the ones they brought in well, so far yeah, are, were exactly. no-brainers, right? Right, I mean, yeah. You're talking anytime you bring Pearl Jam to Missoula, you got a home run, and, and then you're looking at the Stones and Paul McCartney. I mean, those are three fantastic acts. Um, but I think there's a whole nother level mm-hmm. um, that could still be really successful in that venue. Um, the Adams Center, I think, is a bigger challenge. I mean, the Adams Center uh, acoustically is a huge challenge. Yeah. Um, I think it's a it, it has the potential of being a great venue, and I think if a little money were put into the acoustics, you could you could address that. Um, you know, there's always challenges with the, with a university or a public institution around things like the bar service and yep. and those types of issues, and just how they are they they issue uh, requests for proposals and how they select the vendors. We don't get to control the whole stream if we were to come into the Adams Center and do a show, and mm-hmm. it's made us reluctant because. We want to make sure that's a great experience all around. And when we can't control all the components, it makes us reluctant to want to come in and do a show there. Um, You know, if I can't control the security at the front door and I can't control the concession services, then people coming in there may not have a great experience. So, um, you know, that's something we've had discussions with the university about, and and we would love to help figure that out. Um, I think it's a huge opportunity and something we're really interested in. Well, it certainly seems like you know you've got a lot of dimensions of this this thing figured out, and, and we could certainly capitalize on that relationship. Yeah, so we've talked a lot in this conversation about how you guys approach growth, how you've uh, sort of reinvested in the business to grow it to the scale you're you're trying to achieve. Uh, but I'd like to talk as we close uh, about some of the great things you're doing to reinvest in this community. As we mentioned before. You guys have a huge footprint in the downtown corridor and beyond in many other places in, in the state, really. Um, you're invested in environmental sustainability. You're invested in, um, you know, affordable housing, like you said, is an important cause, other causes. You know, how do you make choices about where to allocate your, your community-oriented efforts? Yeah, I mean, it's a big part of our business model is to donate back a, a substantial portion of our profits back into the community. Um, we think... Uh, uh, a healthy community, particularly in our target areas, is is good for our business in the long run, and it's good for our brand, and mm-hmm. it's it's good for the community in which we live. Uh, our our focused areas are really two. Uh, one is arts and culture, in particular around youth and arts and culture, and the second area is around conservation. Um, we've that's our mission of we've created a foundation, the Log Jam Foundation, and, and if it doesn't fit into one of those buckets, it's not something we generally look at. Mm-hmm. Around the arts, um, again, like I said, youth arts, and in, in particular, we've invested in two organizations, uh, Spark, yep. which is a Kennedy Foundation organization that reintroduces the arts back into public school, which I think is, is a shame how much that's been cut. Yeah. Um, and then the other is the ZAC, which yep. is Zutan uh, Community Center, Arts Community Center, uh, and that's to get that facility downtown, that's amazing. Yeah. We thought was critical and cool, and and having this vibrant arts community in downtown uh, Missoula, we think is a critical component. Getting back to your question on growth, it, it, one of the things that can happen with growth is as you grow and you look at towns like Boulder, you've seen it lose its character a little right. bit. You've seen all these chains come in and all of these different kinds of things come in and, and, and you no longer have what made it cool originally. You've mm-hmm. become like every other town in the country. And we believe that the arts are one thing that's a differentiator in every community and having a local art community center and local arts downtown is is cr- critical to keeping that identity, that culture, that that character, that unique characteristic of that community. So 
Um, we made a substantial investment in the Zach to try to keep that kind of thing downtown. And we think it's good for our business, too. Yeah, and now they, they own that building. They do. You know, and that's that, that's critical because in a growing market like this, if they were renting in, in downtown, they could get priced out of that market pretty easily. Which most not-for-profits are getting Correct. priced out yeah, of the downtown yeah. market. Um, so, you know, and then on the conservation front, um, we live in and operate and work in this beautiful right. place. And, and so – we have the Blackfoot River Fund, which is dedicated to the Blackfoot River, where our amphitheater is located. Um, and then on a sustainability standpoint, we've now become uh, a zero-waste venue. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, with the last piece being plastic bottles, um, which the music industry as a whole has made right. a big push to get rid of. But, you know, frankly, our customers don't accept that yeah. as, a, as, a, as a viable approach to business. And they were telling us they don't want those bottles in there anymore. So... We partnered with Phillipsburg, went to Aluminum Bottles, a local water provider. Um, substantial cost to us to do that, but I think it's it's those are the kinds of things that build loyal customers, and, and as other potential players come into the market, we'll keep our loyalty, we feel, from, from our customers over others. Yeah, and you mentioned in their brand. So if you were to distill your brand down to like three, what are the three kind of core associations you want people to think of when they think of Logjam and your venues? Yeah, it's a lot of what we talked about. I mean, yeah. first and foremost, it's it's uh, community. Uh, we both our our customer community and the greater Missoula community, um, but community is a big piece of our brand. Um, quality, particularly around production, we want people to come in and leave that experience saying, "That's the best venue I've been to. That's the best service I've been I've had. That's the best sound I've heard." Um, you know, I'd say those are probably the two yeah. big things for me. Um, that that you know, and I think we've we've really focused on those, and hopefully, people think we're doing a good job there. Well, I certainly think you you are, Nick. I can't thank you enough for not only just coming by here to share some of your your story with us, but also for all the good things you're doing in this community. We're lucky to have you, and uh, for all the opportunities you're providing for our students, and for pushing us to do what we do better. So, Nick, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, coming up next week, we have the next edition in the Sea Change series. I am excited to bring you Jennifer Palmieri. Jennifer was communications director for the Hillary Clinton campaign. She served as communications director uh, in the Obama White House. She worked in the Clinton White House. Incredible political mind and uh, excited to tell you why she's here in Missoula and bring you that episode next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkel and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.